Greetings ladies and mental gents and welcome to this batch video for the web novel Out of Space taken from the website Royal Road. And as always I hope you enjoy the narration and if you do please consider supporting the channel. Chapter 369 Go Strike United Nations Fortress Singapore Command Bridge Commander Blake stood before the armored viewports of the bridge staring out to the city frowning. He turned and looked at the tactical plot on the table which had a map of their current ongoing conflict being displayed. Several red icons were blinking currently, which indicated areas that troops were engaged with the Imperials. The entire UN ground forces had already a single marine division, including all artillery and support staff, plus another division of self-defense force trained only in fixed defenses. For the strength of the Air Force, there was 110 biplanes, the FA-1 Cobra, which meant 10 squadrons, and a third of fighters still undergoing upgrades with the Super Cobra model. They had doubled the number of multi-role flying boats, the FB-1 Mariners, from the original tour to eight units now. As for the Hilo units, they now had 20 of those beasts, all stationed as reserve battalions holding areas on standby to rapidly deploy the Marines to any hotspot. The highly anticipated cargo planes were still in trial phase and not in mass reduction line yet. Several problems had come up over the trials, such as overheating of the engines and the heavy vibrations on the airframe. The Navy was in a worse position. Manpower was primarily assigned to the Marines first, then the Air Force. The Navy got the remaining dregs and it showed as their presence was weaker compared to the rest. Due to lack of manpower, Commander Ford had asked for permission to hire civilian contractors to offset the lack of manpower, which also helped provide jobs to the population. But it was just a temporary stopgap measure for the Navy. With spring here and the seas once again calm enough, the goblin pirates and raiders will be out in force. This was the time the new Navy greatly needed to provide the safe zones as the trading season kicks in, and they had to protect the Isles merchants' ships coming to conduct trade with the UN to provide Blake with much-needed gold and silver for all the projects and government policies. And because of the lack of manpower for the Navy, they got blindsided by the Imperials in the Inland Sea. Their only floating service tender to the Soul Sea came under attack was almost captured if not for the timely arrival of the fighter squadron from Orwell's Point. Thankfully, the Imperial fleet got beaten back and they retreated off. While PT boats towed that fixed tender to safety, it had also caused the Navy to gain good will between the naval and civilian crew who bravely defended the service tender. This incident had forced Commander Ford to reassign his barely small fleet of Saucy, meaning he had to transfer a few PT boats and transfer them overland to Orwell's Point and deploy them into the Saucy to provide some naval support. The Navy's sole seaplane tender was already in bad shape and it now reserves as a floating seaplane base based off the Goblin Sea for the Navy's entire two squadrons of sea cobras that had yet to receive any upgrades to the supermodel. Shall he ask for the Isles to pull support of the Goblin Pirates, wondered Blake, as he tapped his finger on the side of the plot table. He cast his eyes back to the thick blue dotted lines that depicted the northern front. So far, the Marines were holding firm. The sheer number of Imperials kept slipping through the 285-kilometer-long front. One division of Marines and 12,000 men of civil battalions with their backs to the uncharted forest was covering 285-kilometer-long defensive line with another two battalions in reserve were just overstretching the troops. Nova Command, led by Colonel Frank, had given a plan. 
They ignored any leakers. The Marines would hit any en masse concentrated Imperial troops while letting the small numbers to leak past Frank and into the uncharted forest. Blake had given his approval for the plan, which he knew that any small unit of Imperial troops, unlucky enough to get wander into the uncharted forest, was very certain to eat up in the cooking pots of some of the monsters that came out of hibernation. Even the Marines' own supply lines were run by armored gun trucks and done by air. They were all too well versed in the horrors of the uncharted forest. As for the Imperials that managed to survive and come within distance of any settlements of the city, the SDF could take care of them. If they were unable to, they would have options to either airstrike or artillery strike or even marine reserve force. And thinking of the SDF, Blake's expression turned sour. There were too many disciplinary actions amongst the SDF. Most of the personnel in the self-defense force were remnants of the old city watch. Ex-imperial soldiers, mercenaries, cutthroats, thieves, and even adventurers. Oh, there might be a few righteous youngsters wanting to protect their homes, but most of them were scum who were in the SDF. With barely a season to train the SDF and no time to filter anyone, the SDF had too many issues once they were deployed. There were some good seeds in the SDF, but they were overshadowed by the bad. Blake frowned as he pondered very hard at the thought of assigning hardcore officers to ensure strict discipline amongst the ranks of the SDF. Kinda like Judge Dredd or Commissioner of old. Hell, the rules of wartime allow officers to execute anyone for cowardly conduct, which barely anyone in the UNMMC does. But if he wants to do this hardline tact, he needs to use non-SDF officers, incorruptible, to really ensure discipline. He sighed as he recalled the amount of corruption, abuse of authority, insubordination, and many other disciplinary problems that popped up not even two months after the SDF was formed. The worst had been selling the weapons and desertion. He really needed to deal with the SDF now, before the problems took root and affected the SDF in the future. Blake rubbed his face and wondered who to get to be the bad guy of the UN. Frick, Endel has already been doing some shady stuff, might as well let them be the bad guys. The Imperial City of Silverton, City Citadel, Great Hall. The Emperor Varrican frowned as he glanced at the map filled with colorful flags and wooden tokens. Why is the first and second armies repeat to back so far? My Emperor, a general with his head uncovered by armor, stood forward and bowed. Both armies have encountered the enemy's demonic weapons and fell like rain, killing many of our soldiers. It was till they retreated back to this point so far that the reign of demonic spells cease. Varrican's frown deepened, and yet there is no sight of the enemy. Yes and no, my emperor, the staff general replied to point at the map. Here, here, and here are soldiers and knights have encountered the enemy, and here the Grand Fleet too has encountered the enemy. And the results? Why are our troops still not advancing forward? Varrican asked. <clears throat> Unfortunately, Darth General rubbed the sweat beading on his forehead and said bravely, Our forces are repelled by the enemy's demonic spells and weapons. But we found a flaw in the enemy's defenses, the General quickly added as the Emperor could speak. We found that the enemy was unable to spot small units of our men slipping past their defenses. Any large force that has gathered, the Staff generally quickly explained as he saw the raised question eyebrow of his Emperor, was hit by a large number of demonic spells. But we found that if we split our forces into smaller groups of roughly a hundred, they can slip past the notice of the enemy. The Staff General said, The commanders have already sent word that they are splitting their troops into small units to try and sneak past the defenses, and after gathering together, will send a signal to the frontline soldiers. 
and they will make a pincer attack at the enemy. The emperor nodded in understanding before he gave out a peat of laughter. Good, good. At least you all are using your brains. If not, you wouldn't need brains anymore. The staff officers all looked at each other and broke out in an uneasy laughter with the emperor's attempt at a joke. Just at this moment, a young noble in ornate armor spoke out. My emperor, so far we've witnessed the rebels use their demon weapons mostly targeting our soldiers on the ground. I suggest we make use of the dragons and fly our soldiers across, the young noble said. This way we can avoid the demonic spells. Emperor Varrican paused in his laughter and considered the suggestion. Hmm, yes, that does make some sense. What do you all think? The rest of the staff officers looked at each other again and nodded in agreeing. Emperor Varrican nodded and said, Good, you, whatever your name is, I should grant you command of the Dragon Corps and the Third Army. I want you to move the Third across within the walls of Orwell's Point by the end of the month. Your Emperor, this lowly one is named Alberto, Alberto Rothschild. You command and I obey. United Nations, Far Harbor, Naval HQ, Chief of Naval Ops Office. Commander Ford had a deep crease on his forehead as he had been frowning a lot these past few weeks. Report after report of operation readiness were piled up in his desk, most of them with problems like not enough crew to full man the ships, or this and that ship had a sprung a leak and the engine failure. He double-checked the calculated cost of transporting four PT boats from Far Harbor all the way to Orwell's Point and sighed deeply, as the numbers looked to be cutting into his already very limited budget. His goblin sea fleet now only had five PT boats in operation and another two down for overhaul of their engines. The two supposedly ready gunboat corvettes were three weeks late of their sea trials and commissioning. The UNS floating wreck was literally a wreck now, due to its structural beam was not even rated to use of modern engines or worse, the three-inch guns. The sailboat converted gunboat could no longer withstand the more stresses to its beam and would likely shake itself apart if the ship ever came in combat again. As for the seaplane tender, the UNS Matador, which the howls which sold by the bloody islanders were already old and rotten, it too no longer rated capable to handle high seas and had to retire as a floating base for the Navy seaplanes. Now, without the UNS floating wreck and the transfer for the four PT boats, the Goblin Sea Fleet doesn't even have a proper surface ship. The only five PT boats that couldn't even hit high seas, only enabling them to operate near the coastline and only supported by two squadrons of old model Cobras to cover the coastline so vast. Ford didn't even want to think about it. He leaned back in his chair in a puff of breath. Without two Corvettes, how the frick am I going to protect the coast? Frickett. Ford stood up and led out of his office. He nodded to the naval sentries as he walked towards the shipyards where the two corvettes were sitting uselessly in the dry docks. He found the chief shipwright arguing with a crowd of goblins, then ramped up one of the corvettes. Get back to work, you green scums! The chief shipwright yelled. You do as I say! Stupid chief! The goblins yelled back. We want pay increase or we go and strike! End of chapter. Chapter 370 Internal Problems Commander Ford frowned as he walked up into the group. What's the problem? The chief shipwright turned and saw who was behind him and stifled up and quickly threw out a greeting. Sir? He threw a chilly glance at the group of goblin techs who drew a crude salute before petrifying into attention when they saw who had appeared. So, uh, Ford demanded as he turned his attention back to the chief shipwright. Sir? 
The chief quickly said, The goblins are on strike. They are not willing to continue work unless we meet their demands. Ford frowned as he turned to the goblins still frozen in their statue pose. Is that true? Uh, yes, sir. One of the goblins, with a wilding mask over his head, replied, We work overtime, no extra pay, no pay. Yeah, yeah. Another goblin, wearing a pair of goggles, added, Orcs get combat pay, marines. We techies get no overtime pay, no pay. No pay. Chorus the rest of the goblins together. It seemed like this was what's the slogan for them. No pay. Hey, the shipwright jerked his thumb behind him, gesturing to the ship and glared at the rowdy goblins. You were supposed to finish up a month ago, and since you can't finish your work, you, of course, have to work overtime to finish up. No fair, the goblins grumbled. Not our fault the tupid elves not deliver steel in my parts. Ford vaguely understood what was going on between the shipwright and the goblin techs. All right, enough. Both parties stopped their argument and quietened down, except for the goblin wearing the welding mask. Be chief on ship, chief. We want justice. Ford sighed inwardly, and he replied, All right, before we decide anything, let me get this straight. These two ships are unable to be completed in time due to lack of materials, Ford asked. The chief ship right sighed and nodded together with the goblins. Our parts and materials were ordered from the factories were delayed. Yeah, and not all come, the goblins interjected from the side. Lousy quality, too. So why wasn't the issue brought up? Ford turned to the chief. You had so much time to report this incident to me. Why haven't you done so? The chief, shipwright's face turned red. I, I, had, I had too many other things to work on. The factories are saying the departments are needing parts and materials urgently, and I thought that we could pay off the workers and the factories to supply us first, but um, we got turned down. Ford sighed. First of all, you are no longer in whatever place you came from. This is the UN. Bribes are illegal, and in the first place you shouldn't even need to resort to bribes. Chief, I don't care how you used to do things before you joined the UN, Ford said in a serious tone. Do not want such things to be repeated ever again. Do you understand? Yes, sir. The chief's face turned pale white as the goblin snickered and scalding he got. And if there is any delays in the shipment, you are to report it to your superior for failing that report it directly to me, Ford stated. These issues shouldn't be a problem if you've had reported it earlier. I, I'm sorry, sir, the chief apologized. It'll not happen again. Make sure it doesn't so. Or I'll fire you and have someone else more competent to take over your duties, Ford warned. And for you goblins, the goblins quickly hid their glee and giggles from Ford as he turned his attention to them. I will not pay overtime this time around. The goblins, hearing the news, immediately were crestfallen. Ah, but I will give you a bonus if you all finish up this remaining work within a week, Ford said. The goblins heard that, and the gears picked up. Really? Yes, Ford nodded, but both ships must be ready to ship trials within a week. Aye, the goblins threw a salute. We can do it in time. Ford shook his head as he watched the goblins drag the chief ship right to a towards the ships with great energy and excitement. He frowned as he really needed to complain to Blake regarding the priority of tasking resources. At this rate, the Navy would really be picking up the leftovers of the Air Force and the Marines. Orwell's Point, SDF City Depot. The newly constructed base for the city's militia was sited just a kilometer away from the city walls. Concrete, sandbags, and razor wire surrounded the green tents and the only permanent structure, a three-story concrete building that secured the SDF administration offices and command post. The CO of the SDF was sweating in his uniform as he stared at the intel officer seated before him. I, 
I can assure you that there, there, are, uh, there are no issues with our inventories. Lieutenant Tavar smiled as he propped the shiny black combat boots up on the table. Well, then there's nothing for you to be worried about. The CO nodded and eyed the four grim-looking black-uniformed guards of the Intel Division, armed with the latest subgun, which had only been rumored. T-T? No, thank you, Tavar replied in a lazy voice and glanced at his watch. I think my men are about done with their auditing. A knock came from the door, and one of the black-uniformed guards opened up the door and admitted another black-cladded officer. Sir? The newly-arrived officer bent over and whispered into Tavor's ears. The local SDF CO swallowed nervously as he strained his ears, hoping to catch some of the conversation. Tavar's smile grew wider as he listened to his subordinate's report. Well, well, well... Seems like you have some issues with your record-keeping, Tavar said. Come, let us see what is wrong with your records. Tavar stood up and gestured for the CEO to follow him. He strolled out of the office, like he owned the place, while the local SDF officers gave ground to him as they wondered what was going on. Tavar followed his subordinates to a small mound where a concrete bunker was buried under the earth. There were some guards, and they opened up the steel-reinforced door for Tavar. When he arrived, and upon ending, the smell of machine-gun oil assailed his nostrils. Rows and rows of rifles neatly racked onto the wooden shelving lined the interior. Tavar did a quick mental count as he scanned the gun racks. So, how many's missing? Eleven M1 Magelock rifles and twenty Dragon single-action revolvers. His subordinate replied off the list, all of them registered to non-existing SDF personnel. I oh my, Tabor shook his head and looked at the trembling SDFCO. How did this happen? Under your watch, I I swear I, I know nothing about this, the SDFCO said. Uh, it, it must be the armorer. He, he must have done something. Interesting, Stavar sighed as he took the list from his subordinate. I have your signatures here and stamp. No, 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 can't be, the SDFCO yelled in his defense. There must be a mistake. You do know that those trading firearms without prior approval from high command and falsifying government documents is a very serious crime. Tavar raised an eyebrow, and as an officer had sworn an oath and when you signed up for this. It's not me, the CO fervent denied his involvement. Well, I'm sure we'll get to the bottom of this in no time, Tavar smiled. SDF Major Lackard Rowe, you are now hereby requested to assist us in the investigation of the illegal sale of firearms. Your duties will temporarily be discharged and are till proven guilty or innocent. You will remain in custody without bail. Do you understand your rights? Tavor asked, and when the CO denied to reply, Tavor shrugged and said, Take him away. The CO and those suspected of being involved in the incident were gone. Tavor sighed and turned to the newcomer who just arrived. Well, the position of the local SDF commander is now vacant. Do you want it? Ex-Captain Knight Judas, now wearing the khaki brown uniform of an SDF and the insignia of Captain Frowned. You want me to clean up this crap? Yes, Tavar said. Since your patron is the city governor here, I thought you might like to take up the offer. Judas sighed. So where do I start? Well, we start from the top, Tavar smiled. Find out who corrupted from the officers and work our way down to the enlisted. You do know that this is effectively a cripple, the SDF, Judas said, especially if a large cadre of officers was suddenly removed. It'll leave the SDF without any leadership, so also bringing down its morale. Of course I know this, Tavor replied in a dismissive way. But we need to get rid of this, um, corruption first, before the SDF can be useful. If not, we might as well disband the SDF. 
you decide again. Why did I choose to join the SDF? I should have applied for the Marines or something else. <laughs> Tabor grinned. Well, it's because you can't leave the princess alone. Judas growled. And after that, she's my liege, and I have sworn my oath to serve and protect her forever. Well, if the officers here take their oath as seriously as you, Tabor shook his head, you, we won't have a problem. Anyway, clear out any officers and troops that are corrupt. Tavar reminded Judas, I will try and chase down those missing weapons. Judas nodded, don't worry, I'll find those um, traitorous scums and bring them to justice. UN Haven National Hospital. Dr. Saren massaged her aching head. Lately, the voices in her head had appeared to have stopped, but recently it started back up again. The constant whispers in an unknown language seemed to be trying to tell her something, but she could barely understand what they were telling her. She had kept a notebook, writing down the pronunciations as much as she could of the words that were spoken. She had shown Madge to Thorne, yet he was baffled by the words and her condition, as two couldn't find anything wrong with her using magic. She decided to ignore the words and went about her day, tending her patients and teaching trainee doctors and nurses the art of science in medicine and healthcare. She even pushed away from the negative thoughts of deaths of the human marines which she could still remember. She sighed, thinking that this planet was both wonderful and alien, yet the local conflicts were nonetheless similar to the wars humans had waged throughout history. Luckily, there was some good, like marriage between the captain and the princess. Hmm, I wonder if the princess bore a baby between a human and an elf. Dr. Sharon mumbled to the computer. Since our DNA shares a close 99.93 similarities, almost the same as chimpanzees. It should work, Dr. Sharon frowned, since we humans and owls both have 23 pairs of chromosomes. The only issue is that both species can't donate blood to each other, Dr. Sharon continued narrating to a computer. But if we tank the blood serum protein called albumin with both humans and owls have, we technically can use it to save lives. We could also use plasma from both species after the red blood cells, white blood cells, platelets, and other cellular components are removed, Dr. Sharon said. But the interesting thing now is to observe if a human can impregnate an elf. Hmm, Dr. Sharon's eyes glittered. It should be interesting to study the effects of interbreeding between two alien species. I wonder how it'll turn out in the end. End of chapter. Chapter 371. Fishbait. UN Northern Front Command HQ. Colonel Frank moved the wooden markers of the two marine battalions back to the west flank of Foliage, all the way to the edge of the uncharted forest. He wanted to bait and draw the Imperial Army on the left of the Northern Front, to, once the Imperials were lured in, they would find themselves with the Sawtooth Mountains on their right, and two battalions of marines at the front, and the city of Foliage on their left. Frank would then throw everything he had to destroy the first Imperial Army, which Intel had identified. His strategy now is to defeat the Imperial Spearheads one by one, rather than focusing on everywhere. In this end, he was diverting all the bomber wings to Orwell's Point to hunt down the Imperial fleet lurking around the Inland Sea. He looked at the map of the Northern Front and anchored on his left was the Sawtooth Mountains, followed by Foliage, and came as a stretch of forestalled land of almost 300 kilometers came the river of Orwell's Point. The rear of this Northern Front was the uncharted forest that only city and the front Orwell's Point was connected by the capital by a highway through the dangerous uncharted forest, while the road to Foliage was barely even completed, just cleared path of large enough for a heavy trucks and military vehicles to pass by. The stretch of land between the two cities was the problem, as the entire UN did not have enough troops to hold the ground against the Imperials. 
Frank carefully placed a square block on the map where the hills had depicted. He planned for the troops to build a series of large forts along the stretch of land that will be viewed as threatening by the Imperials and forcing their hand at attacking the forts. And while the Imperial armies were busy trying to destroy the forts, he would wipe out the Imperial First Army. Now, his troops were solely dependent on two slim threads of supply, which can easily be cut off any marauding goblins or monsters in the uncharted forest. Other military combat units only controlled the stretch of road within the designated checkpoints and could only serve as a reaction force when the convoy was attacked. To protect the vulnerable supply lines, he has taken the liberty of requisitioning certain materials from the production factories, namely several tons of armor plating and what appeared to be for the navy. Frank broke into a mischievous grin as he recalled the pinching of materials that were for the navy. The military logistics department were confused at first when several tons of armor plating arrived at the motor pool until Frank gave them a hint of armoring up their trucks. Once the hint had been understood, everything else went into history. The mechanics of the military logistics department welded the borrowed armor onto the sides of the trucks and mounted machine guns on all sides of the vehicles. Thus, the military's logistics gun trucks were born and the supply convoy required lesser escorts and supply convoys would defend themselves. The hardened convoy could protect themselves without the need of putting valuable combat units out from their stations. Frank nodded to himself once he rearranged the tokens on the map and called his staff together in a meeting room to discuss the battle plan. But by now, Commander Ford should have found out that these materials were missing for his ships. So first, he had to pen an apology mail for Commander Ford for borrowing his materials without notifying him. First, Imperial Army. Commander Kota was an old veteran of several campaigns. He was the one who had led the first army to victory over the Beastmen, pillaging and raising the city down to the many prime slaves and capturing it in that campaign. The pacification of the Beastmen was also done by him the first army ending them with the nickname of the Army of Beastmasters, for the slaves following the first were mostly beastmen. He frowned as he looked upon the cloudy skies and put past two days. There was no sightings of the demonic flying crosses coming to drop off the demon eggs. As those thrice-cursed flying demons ran out of energy, his close commanders and aides joined him in watching the skies from under the cover of the forest. The bulk of his army had scattered into the small units and taken shelter under any trees and away from the prying eyes of the skies. His mages had spent much of their power casting glimmer and anti-scrying spells all over the army. A blonde-haired knight giggled as he sat next to another knight wearing a full-faced, featureless helm. Say, let the rebels are so interesting, do you think that there'll be more of a challenge compared to those beastmen? The helmeted knight gave a wordless shrug while the laughing knight sighed. It's been so long, my blades are rusty. These rebels better last longer than those kitties. Right. The laughing knight seated on the back of the slave beastman jerked hard as the metal chain on the rand which was connected to the slave. The collared beast girl with the blue ears and the tail choked and laughing knight as again. How long do you think I can make a rebel break? The beast girl on all fours choked back her tears and she cast her eyes downward. Fear gripping her heart as her master used her to back as a chair. The laughing knight grinned. Still, these rebels have some interesting magic. Think it's comparable to the beast city's magic defenses. Not sure, the helmeted knight replied. Need to witness it before judging. Ah, the laughing knight sighed dramatically. When are we going to attack? Soon, the helmeted knight said. Just as the helmeted knight finished his words, he mounted soldier on a messenger flag on his back, rode past and yelled at the troops. 
Break Camp the First will begin marching by the end of the class. See, the helmeted knight said again before he stood up and dusted his armor. Let's get ready. <clears throat> the laughing knight stood up and stretched. Unlike his armored friend, he was dressed in a set of simple robes with a weapon belt on. He kicked the rear of his slave and said, Let's go, go and pick up everything. The beast girl slave bowed and quickly scampered off to do his bidding, only to choke back and fall flat her rear as the laughing knight suddenly pulled the chain with his hand while laughing. <laughs> All right, you can go now. The girl only moved after making sure that her master had released the chains. She rubbed away her tears as she ran, thinking that one day she was going to enjoy stabbing her master to death. Northern Front, 1st Battalion, A Company Lance Corporal Slow, lying prone on the soft grass, fired off a burst of aimed machine gun fire at a small cluster of Imperials. The bright red-yellow tracers stabbed into the night and flicked off in the night skies as the rounds bounced off around around the Imperials. Under the dying glow of the illumination flare, Slow could see the group of Imperials dropping like puppets with their strings cut, and he still had those bodies another dose of lead, just in case he found the Imperial soldiers to be crafty enough to play dead. A company! A sharp whistle blew before a shower came from the sides. Prepare to fall back. Up. Slow cursed as he hung the ammo belt over his arm and gripped the bipod of the MG at the same time. He crawled his way to his feet and ran back to his platoon sergeant, yelling at them to double-time their rears. I hate stopping and running. He saw the Asagi-01 waving its tiny clawed arms at him before him, urging him to run faster. Slow ran up to the slope and dropped the weapon onto the rear of the ASAG and caught his breath just as the ground they gave up exploded in flames. The enemy was learning adapting rapidly to their tactics and even took to a page from their artillery. The Imperial Majors would now lob fireballs over the heads of the infantry like mortars at any positions of marines once found. The fire spells would explode on contact and would cause third-degree burns to any exposed flesh and also the nasty tendency to ignite any ammunition or grenades carried by the unfortunate soldier, which sometimes lightning spells also did the same. Due to this, the all marines preferred to now keep a safe distance from any flamer. Even the marines wielding the flamers themselves requested to switch weapons, which the officers approved. But still, the balls of flames dropping from the skies were a nightmare to all marines. Slow ducked as a heat wave of the Imperial's majors watched over him, and he almost instantly. The telltale shrieks of friendly mortar cracked overhead, and the artillery duel began. Slow pushed himself up and allowed the ASAG and his company to fall back, while B Company on the flanks provided covering fire. The Imperials had used the cover of the knights to advance forward, and they accidentally tripped a wire which had launched a warning flare after which the night exploded into thunder and flames as the marines rained down on surprised imperials. But the first imperial army were veterans. They recovered rapidly and instead of retreating they charged instead. The majors quickly supported the troops by throwing protection spells and glimmer spells to aid the troops' charge. Some of the smarter imperials threw themselves down flat on the ground, which saved them from the night suddenly turned to day from the illumination spells appearing in the skies. The thunder roars, the marines' guns broke to silence, and the night as tracers flew into the imperial positions while the battalion mortar teams lobbed mortar shells at the enemy. Unfortunately, the first imperial army was split into small units, making defensive mortar fire ineffective. The marines had to instead rely on barbed wire and mines planted beforehand, and in the dark, these obstacles proved their worth in slowing and stopping the imperials. Hey, company, hold! 
Former line here. Company commander blew his whistle and roared. The marines skidded to a halt and prone down, facing the enemy again. Cover B Company's retreat. Slow was confused as to why they were retreating as he dropped his belly. He gave a grunt and a sharp rock dug against his chest and he shifted his more comfortable position while deploying his MG. He loosened off another burst of moving shadows and glitter armor in the distance, watching more traces bounce off into the sky spectacularly. Why give ground when they can hold off the damn blue boys easily? Yet another whistle blew and the company commander's shout was heard. Hey company, fall back. Over the course of two hours, 1st Battalion fought a fighting withdrawal with the Imperials. There were only a few injuries, mostly from falling in the dark. Only six Marines suffered from burns and arrow nicks in the, from the Imperials, yet they retreated more than five kilometers. The men rested when the dawn broke, 1st Battalion retreating back again. This time they pulled back another 20 kilometers, and once they were in sight of the uncharted forest, they were ordered to dig in and wait for the Imperials. UN Northern Front Command HQ. Colonel Frank nodded as he listened to the reports coming from the front and he smiled. Now they had lured the Imperials in. Will they follow and take the bait? He rubbed his hands in anticipation for the first Imperial Army's commander's move. Here, fishy fishy, says the fisherman. End of chapter. Chapter 372. Disciplinary Actions. UN Fortress Singapore. Captain Blake slammed his clenched fist angrily against the table and glared at his officers' images on display. Stealing from other departments. What the frick were you thinking? Colonel Frank stood at attention and kept his eyes staring straight over at Blake's head in the video call. Sir, securing our supply lines was the utmost importance, sir. Don't give me that crap, Blake sighed. Here, I'm trying to wipe out corruption amongst the ranks and you, the commandant of the whole goddamn Marine Corps, goes off to steal from the Navy. What frickin' kind of message are you trying to send down to the rest, huh? Blake glared at Frank. Did you think of the consequences when you pulled the stunt? Yes, sir, Frank replied stiffly. Then, Blake scowled, I'm having officers with the SDF's course-martial and punished, and my own officers go and do this, and I have to go court-martial one of my own officers who are supposed to be setting a standard. Sir, Commander Ford stepped in, maybe we should just cover this up. Cover this up, Blake rubbed his face tidily. And play favorites. No, sir, Ford said. We can say that there was a cock-up in the supply order and the court-martialing a high-ranking officer and the commandant of the Marines is a negative effect on the Marines, the people's confidence in the military and our war efforts. Despite Colonel Frank's young age, Ford looked off-screen. He is well-liked by the Marines. Prosecuting him might be some backlash from the Marines and especially from the people in the military logistics department since he came up with the idea to up their rate of survival out there. Next, public confidence will drop since Frank is one of the humans and senior one to boot. Ford pointed out next. Already the public is unhappy with the SDF antics and corruption, and with the arrests, the public is only gaining the trust in us. Oh, we air out our dirty laundry, it's gonna be bad. Lastly, Frank is the linchpin of our whole current strategy against the Imperials, Fort said. Removing him from command and placing a new commander in place might cause confusion and change our current grand strategy already in place. Intel Officer Tavar stepped up and said, I concur with Commander Ford's advice. If we are to do this publicly, it'll be bad for all of us. I will advise we settle this issue after the Imperials are defeated in closed-door setting. Blake pondered for a while before he nodded and jabbed a finger at Frank's image. You! I will deal with you after we settle with the Imperials. 
Master Sergeant Pike will babysit over your actions from now on. Next, in a milder tone, Blake said, I know at the start we're all desperate for any measure to survive in our situation. The ideas and initiatives are good, but there is still a chain of command here. I know we had been slack in our discipline amongst our senior officers here, but this is not an excuse nor joke to steal. From now on, any new projects or ideas must be approved by either a committee or personally by myself. I do not want any private pet projects going behind my back with my approval. I glared at the gathered officers and thought to display. Is that clear, gentlemen? Aye, sir. Good. Now what is our current situation? Sir, Operation Mousetrap has begun, Frank reported. A and B battalions have fallen back into a defensive line and are just waiting for the 1st Imperial Army to take the bait. On the middle front, Frank continued, three forts are being constructed by the engineers. These forts will be a distraction lure to the 2nd and 3rd Imperial Army in the center. As for our right, Frank said, Commander Tommy has all his bombers redirected to focus on the Imperial fleet and seriously took us by surprise. Sir, this intelligence is a fault of my department. Intel Officer Tavol spoke up. There was no indication of any fleets nor news. This was either Imperial counterintelligence is better than our intelligence collection, or the Imperials had already planned on a sneak at their ships in, which they kept it a secret till the fleet was launched. And with our slow speed in messaging currently that is at our fleet of influence, Tavar shook his head, the news of an Imperial fleet would only be picked up by us in another week or two. We stepped up patrols around the area by Commander Ford has kindly dispatched a few more PT boats to operate in the area. Frank gave a nod to Ford, but it'll take a couple days to arrive by land and another day before the BT boats are operational. Why wasn't the area around the floating dock patrolled? Blake asked. Sir, we only have three UAVs left and those three have already taken their last legs. Commander Tommy explained, and we have a stretch over 40,000 square kilometers of land and sea to cover the four dragons, three alien UAVs, and a dozen Cobras and recon duties. We can only do so much, Commander Tommy said. We don't have eyes everywhere. Blake nodded, accepting the limitations of their abilities. All right, how about the Navy? We are down to five boats operating in ships around the Goblin Sea, Commander Ford replied. Two down for maintenance and four PT boats en route to Orwell's Point to support the three PT boats there and provide security for the floating service dock. Our supposed two corvettes should have been up and running weeks ago and are still delaying in their slips. Ford did not mention the delayed ship's completion, but I have got assurances from the text that the two ships would be ready for trials at the end of this week, and I promised them a bonus if they can do so. Blake frowned and tapped a few keys on his keypad, and the map of the Goblin Sea appeared on his display. Five small boats to cover the entire western seaboard. Ford gave a shrug. Well, I'm seriously low on manpower and howls, and that was one reason why I hired civilian contractors to crew the Dragon's Roost. I'm focusing the Goblin Sea Fleet to focus on the Straits, Ford continued. That is a high-traffic area, lots of isle merchants, ships coming from Far Harbor, also lots of pirate activity too. Isn't it almost time for the Goblin's annual invasion, Blake asked. They should be sailing across the raid coastline by now, right? Yes, Ford confirmed. It's about time for that. I am having my planes running recon up and down the coast area to keep an eye out for the Goblin raiders. Blake tapped his fingers on the edge of the table. Ford, I know you've been getting the short end of the stick constantly, and despite that, you did the best by ensuring the Navy still does its best protecting our shoals and ships. I promise to make it up to you, Blake said. 
but for now, I still need you to hold the fort with the limited resources you have. Ford nodded and gave a salute, which the rest followed suit, and Blake returned to salute proudly. Go kick some rears. United Nations, Bar Harbor, UN Naval Base, Dry Dock B. Loud music could be heard coming from inside the dry dock, where one Navy's newest corvette sat in a keel blocks that lined the underside of the ship. Already, the ship was fully painted. The bottom half of the hull was coated in the anti-foul red paint, while the upper hull was painted with the new fall-color dazzle camouflage paint of flat back, haze gray, haze white, and ocean gray colors. Sparks rained down on the welding tools and the goblin techies as they welded the insides of the ship's hull, while other goblins installed interior paneling to cover the pipes and wires. The goblins yelled out in tune with their scratchy voices to the lyrics of Right Here, Right Now by Fatboy Slim. They bobbed their heads in tune and worked at a speed that was faster than any alpha human could even manually achieve, while always singing along with the song being played at ear-bursting volume. The chief shipwright gave up trying to get the goblins to turn down the volume as he watched the performance of the goblins. He and the other non-goblins donned ear protection instead and continued with their own work on board the ship and ignored the goblins' choice of music, as long as they performed well. Right here, right now, right here, right now, right here, right now, right here, right now. First Imperial Army General Goter observed the stretch of land that his men had bled and taken frowned. The reports came back from the men at the front were not to his expectations. Firstly, they had found no bodies of the enemy, nor any supplies or camps that usually followed an army. Only baffling items found were large quantities of scattered all over the ground with some sort of tiny brass-colored metal containers that had some kind of burnt smell. Next, his men had taken too many casualties in the night attack. He had hoped to make use of the moonless night to advance as close as possible to surprise the enemy with a dawn attack which his scouts had reported spotting. But the enemy had set up a detection spell of some sort which his men triggered and alerted the enemy and the enemy was ingenious to use some sort of illumination spell together with a floating spell to turn the night into day. And that cursed light spell nearly doomed his men when the cursed rebels used their demonic thunder magic to wreak havoc amongst these soldiers from afar. He should really try and capture some of the rebels and force them to spill the secrets of the thunder magic. From a military point of view, those thunder weapons would be a great asset due to the destructive powers, but he couldn't understand how did the rebels were able to constantly cast such destructive spells constantly. His healers and majors had examined the bodies and the soldiers killed by those demonic thunderstorms and found pieces of lead in their bodies. Some of the majors were theorizing that the rebels were using some sort of slingshot and using some kind of magic to imbue the lead balls with thunder magic. Another group was guessing that the rebels were using some sort of ballista weapon. Lead balls were loaded into the buckets and magic was cast in the ballista before the lead balls were released with a roar of thunder. As for the tiny brass-colored metal containers, the consensus was that it must be some kind of demonic potion used by the rebels to give them near-limited mana. The majors and healers all said the burnt smell lingering behind had a hint of sulfur which demons were known to smell of. General Kota swept his eyes across the untamed land before him. The long grass plains and clumped of forested land had clear signs of the army passing through. He looked to his right where the tall, jagged mountain ridge that looked like daggers stabbed into the heavens, while in the far distance to his left, the tiny-looking town of Fallage appeared to have fallen into the rebel hands. 
Why did the rebels retreat when clearly they had the magic and the potent and this? Were the rebels outnumbered and hence frightened by the soldiers, or was there some sort of trap lying in wait before him? These thoughts went through his mind as he calculated the next course of action. Should he focus on the running rebels or head straight for the town and liberate it? End of chapter And that, my friends, is the end of this video. I hope that you enjoyed if you did, please consider supporting the channel, there are numerous links down below. The easiest way would be to share this video and this channel to as many people as possible to help this channel grow. Your support is very much appreciated, and I will see you all in the next video. Cheers.